Lord God, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock, my Lord, and my Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Today we're going to be concluding our series, Life in the Spirit. I hope you can see by now, if you've been following along in this series, that it is not simply an intellectual exercise that we go through. See, when you are transformed by the renewing of your mind, it transforms your heart, your hands, your full life, your relationship with God. When you are truly in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, you are abiding in Christ Jesus. There is a new life that you have, and in that new life, there's fruit that comes from that. Now, this fruit that comes from that just doesn't happen just overnight. We talked about this last week before. That just as a farmer has to till the ground and plant the seed and water it and give it light and make sure the weeds don't choke anything out, so it is with us. The hardness sometimes of our heart or our life needs to be broken up. That seed of faith put in there by the Holy Spirit. And we need to nurture that. And we are nurtured Through the Word. We are watered by His Word. We are refreshed by His Word. And we are given light to grow. And light comes from Christ Jesus, who is the light of the world. All of this needs to happen. And sometimes, by the way, there's weeding that needs to be done, right? We've talked about this, weeding. Sometimes the Holy Spirit will poke you, will prod you, will say... That's not of Christ. And so there's weeding or dying to things of the world. Other times when you're down, the Holy Spirit picks you up and encourages you. Might even bring other brothers and sisters in Christ into your life to help you. And then you are renewed and you grow stronger in your faith. You grow closer to Christ Jesus. And when all of this happens, when all of this happens, the end result is fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. And now today, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So let us begin with faithfulness. Come on. There we go. Faithfulness. Faithfulness is an enduring loyalty to a person or a cause. And we admire people who are truly faithful to the right person, to the right cause. The passing of Queen Elizabeth. She was respected by many around the world because of her devotion, her faithfulness to the oath that she took. As a matter of fact, in a broadcast to the British Commonwealth on her 21st birthday, when she was 21 years old, she pledged, I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service 
and the service of our great imperial family to which we all belong. She saw public service as one of the most important things in her life. So we admire her for that. But faithfulness like that is kind of a rare commodity in this world, isn't it? I mean, it really is. The only other example that truly pops to mind is the Marines with their, with their motto, Semper Fi, which is a shortened version of a Latin phrase that means always faithful. But it's more than that, right? When a Marine says Semper Fi, it stretches back to the very first Marines. It goes forward past their own lives. It means that they are faithful, enduring, no matter the circumstances. No one is left behind. They will not forsake another brother or sister in the Marines. Semper Fi, always faithful. And yet as wonderful as the Marines are in that regard, or as so caring the queen was in her faithfulness, they are just but a glimmer, a shadow, if you will, of the faithfulness of God. Because true faithfulness comes from God and Him alone. I'd like to go to our reading from Deuteronomy Chapter 7, verse 6 through 9, you have uh, verse 6 and then 9 in there, but I'm going to read the whole thing. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, For you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. The faithful God. Not because Israel deserved it. They didn't deserve it. He was faithful to them because of one thing only, that he chose them and he made a covenant with them. And this covenant, this sacred promise was not made on parchment or paper that can fade or be burned up or disintegrate. The covenant was made on his own eternal name. And thus, he is faithful. And that faithfulness of God does not waver or change. He will not forsake us. We find this in Joshua chapter 1. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Isaiah chapter 42. And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn darkness before them 
into light, the rough places into level ground. These, these are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. God does not forsake us even when we are unfaithful to him. Look, if you read the prophets, if you read Isaiah, if you read Jeremiah, if you read Hosea, you find that the nation of Israel was very unfaithful. The language used is of an adulterous prostitute. That's what the nation of Israel was like, an adulterous prostitute. And it was that everyone in the nation was that way. The priests, the workers, getting drunk, marrying with people of other faiths. It was just as an adulterous relationship. And yet when you read Hosea, and by the way, the language is harsh in there. Hosea says, but the Lord's faithful. Leave your unfaithful ways and come back to him. He will not forsake you. And indeed, when you read the Old Testament, you find that the Lord has not forsaken Israel and he actually promises the Messiah in the Old Testament. It is the Messiah who is the fulfillment of God's faithfulness, of God's redemption, restoring people. In Isaiah, it talks about a prophecy It says, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness, the belt of his loins. And then when you go all the way to the end of the Bible, you see that Jesus is the faithful witness. Jesus is the faithfulness of God who for love came into the world, for love went to the cross, and for love he will come again. That's the faithfulness of God for us in Christ Jesus. And He calls you, He calls you to follow Him, to follow Jesus, to be faithful unto Him. That's the higher calling to which you and I have been called, to be faithful unto Christ Jesus. And we know that's only through the power of the Holy Spirit that that happens. That that following Him day in, day out, week in and week out, it only happens through the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we do that, day in, day out, we grow stronger in our faith. And there is a fidelity that we have. A love that is faithful to the end. That's the relationship we have when we walk in the Spirit, when we abide in Christ Jesus, a fidelity. And I know that's normally used in a marriage context, but that would be appropriate here as well. A faithfulness, a love that is faithful to the end. Because really, I bet most of you want to hear what I want to hear at the very end in heaven. Well done, good and faithful servant. I think that's what we all really want to hear. Well done and good and faithful servant. And when you're abiding in the Spirit in that way, that faithfulness fills you 
and you are drawn ever closer to Christ Jesus, but it also spills out into your other relationships. So you have a faithfulness in marriage, a fidelity that will fight for the marriage, even when it's rough, even when you don't like your spouse. I know, we, I know that's never happened to you, but just in case. Right? But a love that fights because it loves. That faithfulness. A love of parents having to be stern with their children even when the children are adults. That's the faithfulness. And it spills over into the faithfulness uh, fidelity of one another. You know? Of being with one another in the body of Christ. Because I know there are never conflicts in the body of Christ, right? But in case there are, that faithfulness also has forgiveness associated with it. That's what we're talking about. To the very end, well done and good and faithful servant. Why would we ever leave that? You know, just last week I was talking with a person, not in this state, somewhere else, who... um, had just turned 65 and was now officially retired. And this person asked me, when are you going to retire? And I said, not for a long time. And then I said, why would I ever want to retire from ministry? And uh, this person heard it as a criticism against them. I said, no, no, it's not a criticism. It's to retire rhetorical statement. Why would I, look, how can you retire from your relationship with Christ? How can you retire from being faithful to him, of following him and telling others about him? How could you ever give that up? Now, I know that at some point, my body's going to say, you got to retire. Or you might say, you got to (laughs) retire. (laughs) <laughs> been, in there, been there long enough, Pastor. So, I mean, I know that there's going to come a point, but you never retire from faith in Christ Jesus of being faithful to the very end. This is the fruit of the Spirit that comes of walking in the Spirit, of abiding in Christ. Now, the next is Gentleness. Here we go to our reading from Matthew. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus was the gentlest of all people. And, in fact, another word for gentle is meek. Uh, In the the King James Version actually translates that word. It's, and so the verse would read, For I am meek and lowly of heart. So my question for you is, what does gentle or meek actually mean? I mean, let's start with what it doesn't mean. You see, in our day and age, our culture, we have taken gentle or meek to be weak or timid or lacking firmness of convictions, or lacking zeal. But let me ask you, 
Does that describe Jesus? It doesn't, does it? I mean, Jesus was the one who cleansed the temple, all of the money changers. Jesus was the one who proclaimed woe to you scribes and Pharisees. And then he mentioned many different cities as well. Woe to you. So that can't be gentleness. And yet at the same time, Jesus was the one who said, let the children come to me. He was the one who had compassion and fed the 5,000. He was the one who forgave the adulterous woman. He was the one who healed people when they asked for mercy. So what does this gentle or meek mean? Charles Wendell, Pastor Charles Wendell, uh, I'm going to guess some of you at least know who he is. He put it like this. Gentleness is having strength under control. Being calm and peaceful when surrounded by a heated atmosphere. Emitting a soothing effect on those who may be angry or otherwise besides themselves and possessing tact and gracious courtesy that causes others to retain their self-esteem and dignity. I like that one. Strength under control. And yet when I take a look at all of this, I think there's another thing that might be easier for us to remember when it comes to humility, uh, comes to gentleness, and that is humility. I believe that a key to gentleness is humility. You can't be humble and arrogant at the same time. <laughs> there's the old joke. I'm the most humble man you would ever meet. Right? But when we lose our humility, we do become arrogant, pushy, self-centered, trying to impose our will upon other people. When I was in corporate America, you could find this a lot of different places. The people who seemed to rise to the top were generally the ones who had a bit of arrogance about them. But it's not just corporate America. I mean, you can find that in politics right now, right? You certainly find that. Uh, You can find it in churches. You can find it in pastors. But it's not even that, right? That's the big stuff. You can find it in marriages, in relationships with family members, with children, relatives. You can find it many, many different ways. You know, as a pastor, I've learned a lot about humility. Let me give you a, a real-life example. Not me, just a, a, but a, a real-life example. There's a, there was, at one time, a very ambitious young preacher. And this was many years ago. And he was called to fill in for a very famous preacher in England. Now, this young preacher was full of himself, and he was determined to show how wonderful of a preacher he was. So in those days, they had pulpits where he had to climb some stairs. So he went up just full of himself up to the pulpit, and he started to pontificate, to use all these big fancy words, and use the soaring rhetoric and everything, and it was fell flat. 
nothing, not a peep. As a matter of fact, people looked bored and indifferent. And at the very end, when he was done, he kind of went down the stairs like that. And then an elder said to him, if you've gone up the stairs like you came down the stairs, you would have done well. That's the humbleness, the humility that we are to have. You cannot be gentle without humility. You cannot be humble and arrogant at the same time. And also, here's something else to consider. Somebody who is gentle knows that they are called to serve others. There's a great account in Matthew chapter 20. Just listen to the arrogance first. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, John and James, came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, that is Jesus, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. So the mom comes up. My sons, she doesn't say this, my sons are better than the others. They should have a a seat right next to you in your kingdom. Now, all moms kind of go, well, of course, you know, (laughs) our children should. But they're there also asking that. So Jesus said, answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. They didn't know what he was talking about. He said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to them and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you, you must... uh, among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So, in humility, we are to share. We are to serve. Why? This is the call of Christ Jesus, who said, I came Because I delight in the Father's will. Because of the Father's will, I will become humble to the point of death on a cross. And you are to do likewise. Not because it makes you any better than anyone else. But because that's the call to which we are called. And when you have that as your mindset... There's a gentleness that comes as fruit of the Spirit. Listen again to what Jesus said. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, 
and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So we have faithfulness, we have gentleness, and now self-control. Here we are going to go to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and you've got verse 24 through uh, 27 on screen. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. He kind of puts this at the end and says, to be effective, to be effective as a follower of Jesus in the ministry into which you and I have all been called, we must have self-control or self-discipline. And he uses the imagery of an athlete. He says, for every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable So what he's saying is he doesn't exercise just for the sake of exercising. There is a goal in mind. Ultimately, it is the goal that motivates you for this self-control. And for the athlete, it's winning the race, getting that wreath. Or in our day and age, we would talk about the Olympics, right? You have an athlete who is preparing for the Olympics. I came across an article that talked about If you were an Olympic athlete in gymnastics, this might be how many hours you put in. It said, uh, imagine to start gymnastics at four or five years old, and for two years, you are in the gym two hours a week for the year, about 100 hours. Then at age six and eight, you work out for 10 hours a week. And in those three years, amass 1,500 hours for now a total of 1,600 hours that in ages 9 through 13, you work out 20 hours a week, getting to a total of 6,600 hours. And ages 14 to 16, you work out 35 hours a week, getting you over the 10,000-hour mark. That's a lot of hours in the gym, he says, but that would give you the best shot of becoming an expert in gymnastics. Your dedication to training is going to be one of the key factors that separates you from other gymnasts. Now, who was uh, thinking about how many hours being a gymnast in the gym and going, I don't think so. Maybe, Maybe a couple of us. I mean, that's a lot of hours in the gym. I worked out two hours yesterday doing shrubbery and brush cleaning. It was like, oh, tired. But they do it for prize that perishes, right? They do it, all that work, and they maybe get the gold medal, and they get accolades for a while, but all of that perishes. Paul's saying, we have before us a goal that is imperishable, kept for you in heaven. And because of the upward prize, the upward prize of the imperishable wreath of eternal life in Christ Jesus, it's not even comparable to any award here on earth. 
I mean, you can have all the awards, all the accolades, all the gold medals, and they mean nothing to God. Nothing to God. But it is that faith in Christ Jesus and the promise of the gospel. And so Paul wrote this in Philippians. He said, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Paul is compelled by the gospel. It's not just an intellectual thing. It is something that moves his whole being, his whole soul. And so he presses on towards that goal. And thus, you and I press on towards that goal in the call that you and I have been called to. Not because it makes us better than anyone else, but because of the love of Christ Jesus. And thus, because of all that, we practice self-control. Paul wrote this, But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. He's saying, look, Jesus Christ and the gospel is so important that I exercise self-discipline because he doesn't want anybody to see him as an example of hypocrisy. Look, you can't talk with your neighbor about self-control and then get stinking drunk that same night or the next night. You can't talk about faithfulness in marriage and then go on certain websites that you should not be on. All of these show, one, the shallowness of your faith in Christ Jesus, but it also shows judgment against you because others look at your life then and kind of go, well, if that's what being a Christian is, why should I do that? So Paul says, that's why I do it. So I can continue to be an ambassador for Christ Jesus. You know, you can't say, let your light shine while you are walking in darkness. First John says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. And do not practice the truth. And there's the key right there. Practice the truth. How many of you have heard the phrase, are you keeping the faith? You've heard that one, right? As if we keep the faith by just putting it into a box and putting it onto a shelf. But here, John is saying, are you practicing the faith? You know, are you practicing the truth? And how do, you get, how do you get to be really good at, a, at the violin or piano? Practice, 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 right? Why would we think it's any different in our spiritual walk? So day after day, we practice following Jesus. We practice prayer, abiding in him talking with others, 
encouraging one another. See, you, you have no idea how much it means to other people to pray with them. Now, what a blessing that is. You have no idea what it is to talk to somebody who is in the midst of addiction and to share the love, the light of Christ Jesus. I just got a text last night from somebody who really thanked me for encouraging them and helping them in the midst of very difficult times. And I hadn't even, I mean, it's been a month or two since I've had any contact with that person. This is the light of Christ Jesus, and this is what we practice. So in Galatians, it says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with passions, with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So day in, day out, right? We get up, dust ourselves off, do it again through the power of the Holy Spirit. And when you do that, when that seed of faith is planted, when it is watered by His Word, when it is given light, when weeding is done, when there needs to be weeding, there's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So as you go about your week this week, set your mind upon the things of the Spirit. Focus on following Jesus, not chasing after the fruit. Faithfulness. Think about your fidelity to Jesus and following Him. Focus for gentleness. Focus on humility and service and self-control. Have ever before you the upward prize, exercising, practicing, walking in the Spirit, and you will have fruit that abounds. And all the people said, Amen. 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 